Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted February 3rd, 2017, we talk with Nairobi-based political analyst Nangela Niabola about her article in the new WPJ winner issue headlined, A Seat at the Table, the Fight for Gender Parity in Kenya and Somalia. We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ winter issue, cover line interrupted, with a unique perspective provided entirely by female writers and editors. But first, this week's winners and losers report from Eurasia Group, global risk analysts and consultants. This week in Trump calls with world leaders, winners and losers, Russia winner, Trump would never hang up on Mr. Putin, Germany loser, Merkel, it's all perfunctory and the weak Europe is what Trump wants, Merkel doesn't Japan, winner because they're going to build military and Japan's doing everything that Trump wants, France loser, but maybe not after elections, we'll see if Le Pen wins, Australia big time loser, Trump is not flying on Qantas anytime soon. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I stand before you and the world, humbled by this recognition and uplifted by the honor of being the 2004 Nobel Peace Laureate. Biggest challenge is governance. Because the people at the top have power. Because they have power, they, can, they, they have control of resources. They and the public at the grassroots can continue to suffer. And changing the top is very, very difficult. And changing the top, if you don't have the grassroots, is almost impossible. To win the first Nobel Peace Prize ever awarded to an African woman, Professor Wangari Mutamatai of Kenya had launched the now iconic Greenbelt Movement, that planted more than 30 million trees across our country, mobilizing millions of women in a process that the Nobel Committee praised for advancing the causes of sustainable development, democracy, and peace. Her grassroots following also helped Matai win a seat in Parliament in 2002 after several earlier blocked efforts, arrests, and disparagement as a crazy woman and worse. Despite the model Matai provided, sadly, both Kenya and war-torn Somalia next door have the lowest proportions of women in parliament in all of East Africa, 20.8 and 13.8 percent respectively, though both have higher quotas entrenched in their electoral systems. The obstacles involved in both countries, from the closed doors of political leaders to catcalls and actual assault by would-be constituents, and the efforts being made to overcome them, are highlighted in the new winter issue of World Policy Journal by Nairobi-based political analyst Nangela Niabola, also a fellow at the Foreign Policy Interrupted Initiative to amplify female voices on world affairs. Her article is A Seat at the Table, the Fight for Gender Parity in Kenya and Somalia, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Nangela Niabola, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Underrepresentation of women at the parliamentary and congressional level is not a uniquely African problem, nor one solely for underdeveloped nations. Give us a fuller statistical picture. 
Well, it's it's very interesting that this is one statistic that the representation of the legislature that is is a one statistic that doesn't necessarily track with the wealth or the quote unquote development of a specific country. So, uh, as of first December 2016, the country that had the highest number of proportion of women in parliament was Rwanda, 63.8 uh, percent, and Rwanda is actually considered one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, second on that list is Bolivia, um, which also just throws into, if you look at the top 10 numbers, it actually throws into relief the fact that um, there's no really geographical concentration, there's no real like economic concentration. So Bolivia at number two is 53.1%. Uh, Their legislature is 53.1% female. And those are the only two countries globally that actually go over the 50% threshold. From then on, um, we're talking Cuba, Iceland, Nicaragua, Sweden. Um, all of these countries are hovering at the mid to high 40s. And then the numbers really take a dramatic dip and you have the worst performing countries globally. Um, Yemen has no women in parliament. Uh, Vanuatu, Tonga, Haiti has no women in parliament. Uh, Oman has one. Um, and it, it's just, it's a mishmash of geographical spread and of economic development, which suggests that this is a phenomenon that um, defies, you know, people always say, well, more money, you know, the trickle down arguments. And this is one argument that just doesn't just doesn't uh, fit into that paradigm. I guess I have to ask, uh, where does the United States fit into this? The United States comes in... Um uh, it's a middling country, actually, uh, statistically. It's 19.9%. So, uh, sorry, 19.2%. So, United States is number 100, tied for number 100 with Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> um, so, lower than Kenya. So, we actually do perform in, in Kenya, we are 19.7%, and uh, higher than Tajikistan. So, yay, <laughs> I guess. Uh, countries that have been able to attain some measure of gender parity all have one thing in common, quotas. What are the numbers there? So countries with quotas, generally the quotas uh, tend to go for the two-thirds, um, which says that uh, neither uh, gender should dominate the legislature but more than two-thirds. So it tends to go for 33% uh, generally. Um, in East Africa, I can say that every single country put in a, qu a quota for a minimum of 30% representation for women in their constitution. Um, in Bolivia, they didn't go out with an outright quota, but there have been significant legislative efforts to, and to protect the the proportion of women in parliament. So they've been encouraging um, certain special seats, for example, that are parliamentary, full parliamentary seats, but are reserved for female candidates. Um, I think the most interesting country is probably Cuba, which doesn't have a legislative quota, but has had policy initiatives from uh, the president, from both President Castro's, um, to have more women in parliament and, and you know, coming in at 48.9%, that's almost 50-50% representation. Um, but, you know, quotas generally in the Scandinav uh, Scandinavian countries, in East Africa, in Southern Africa, come in at saying no more than two-thirds of the legislature should be of any one gender. Um, and that has been the most common uh, approach to this. The head of the Interparliamentary Union had something to say on the subject that I thought was interesting. 
Yes, so the Interparliamentary Union um, basically keeps track of these statistics and has been trying to figure out what what are these strategies, that what works um, and what doesn't work, and how can they encourage people to, uh, how can they encourage women to participate in the legislature. And he said in um, 2000, I think it was 2010, 2013, he said, you know, people are still fighting about quotas and people, there's still some kind of pushback against them. But he has absolutely said that there can be no delivery, no delivery on democracy without delivering on this particular issue. And so for the interparliamentary union, there's just, there's no reason to keep going around this issue because um, it's, the statistics are in and it shows that this is the best way of getting women in parliament. There is no, there is no other way to ensure the kind of representation that we need in order to conserve democracy for everybody um we this this is it this is what we, we've got to be doing we've mentioned that somalia and kenya are at the bottom of the list uh, in east africa uh, in the case of kenya you blame a patriarchal power structure widespread corruption and a politics of physical intimidation that disadvantages and often just deters female participation talk about that violence well, violence against women in Kenya is actually a very startling and terrifying thing, um, and and it's it's one of the most under discussed public health issues because it is a public health issue um, in the country. Uh, historically, there's been a lot of shame and a lot of, and it has to do with a lot of the the, the social. You know, we don't have a public welfare system. We don't have a social. We don't have socialized medicine, for example, and so family networks become super important. And what that means is that people tend to hold on to social connections like marriage much more firmly than they would in countries where women, for example, had an option. And that means that the tolerance for domestic violence then goes through the roof. In Kenya right now, uh, according to the, a 2014 survey, 42.6% um, of women between the ages of 40 and 49, that's almost 50% of women between the ages of 40 and 49 across the country had experienced physical violence from a partner. Um, and you would think that this would be some kind of national um, issue, but it's really not. It's the, In fact, where legislation has been introduced to try and combat domestic violence, um, there's been a, a significant pushback from Parliament. And, and this ties into the point that I was making. Who is this Parliament speaking for? The patriarchal system in Kenya is very much tied to who has the right to speak in public life, to represent um, opinions in public life. We are, our public, our political system is, is kind of, it's a mishmash. It's a, it's a relic of colonialism whereby we were given Africans were given authority over some domains, and some domains were given to the centralized state. So, for example, taxation became a, a function of the colonizing state. But you had the chiefs, and you had the council of elders, which were local communities that were the whose authority remained um, with the African communities. What that means in the modern sense is that Council of Elders, which still exists across every single major ethnic group in the country, still wields significant political power. You can't run for office, for major office, without having the endorsement of the Council of Elders of your community. It's the Council of Elders that negotiates. And in some places, it's so extreme, like in Mandera, in the northeastern counties. Um, Mandera is on the border with Kenya and Somalia, with Ethiopia and Somalia. 
Somalia, the Council of Elders decides the entire slate from governor to set to um, members of parliament to women's representative without having a single ballot cast. What that means in the context of societies where women are often excluded from conversation, women are systematically excluded from conversation, as well as being victims of violence, is basically that the political decision-making becomes vested in a small group of men who have every interest in promoting the interests of other men and have no significant interest in even looking across to the other gender and saying, hey, why don't we bring these guys into the conversation? And the last point I would make on this is the culture of violence. Uh, politics is very much built on a, on a culture of violence, and we saw the worst of it in 2007, 2008, when we had the post election violence in which 1,500 people were killed. This post-election violence, according to the International Criminal Court, was organized at the highest levels. So Kenya became the second country in history where the head of state, sitting head of state, was facing prosecution by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity, for basically organizing violence against the population in pursuit of a political goal. And this transcends all the level, all the way down. Um, I spoke to women when I was researching this piece. I spoke to women who said that they couldn't go to their own political rallies without being dressed in a certain way because they might be victims of sexual harassment or violence, like stripping. Um, one young lady told me that at three of her own her own rallies, she was stripped by her own supporters because this the idea was that as a young woman as a young single woman making her voice heard in a public in the public sphere was somehow making herself um, accessible and available to men in a sexual way and so women are constantly in public life in Kenya constantly battling on one hand the systemized culture of violence of you know, you cannot get ahead in politics unless you can marshal up some kind of violent um, base. But on the other hand, this institutionalized patriarchy, which says, you know, politics is for men. And, and we, the men, we, the Council of Elders, are the ones who get to decide which men will get to speak for the rest of the community. How do women who want to run win support from or bypass male power brokers? It's interesting. There have been a variety of strategies. Um, some women um, will take on masculinized traits, and there have been women who have been, for example, who have been implicated in political violence. In 2007-2008, we had several prominent female politicians who were themselves accused of organizing small-scale militias to intimidate their opponents, to intimidate their op opponents' supporters. Some women negotiate that by making themselves accessories to male candidates. And so they, they don't threaten the power structure. They just kind of want to be along for the ride. Um, and so they will seek out less competitive positions. For example, will not seek out uh, deputies, uh, you know, will not speak up uh, deputy chief whip or party head positions and take on less contentious positions. Um, some women become very sycophantic towards the male leadership. We had one particular a member of parliament who uh, threatened to strip um, and stripping has, a, to give context, stripping has a very significant cultural context. Um, uh, Dr. Wamboy Mwangi has written an excellent piece about this, about the role um, of, of, you know, public nudity has a very specific, it's 
tied to ideas of curses and ideas of of um, you know being extra ex, uh, being um, exercised being uh, expelled from the community for seeing an older woman naked. So it, it's a huge taboo, and this woman threatened to strip um, in public if the international. Com- a criminal court pursued charges against President Kenyatta. So what does that mean? It means not only am I loyal to this man, but I'm going to go over and above the demands of loyalty and risk this huge public shame and take on this momentous, you know, this is a huge thing. It is not something that should be done lightly in order to protect his honor. And then you have the outliers and you have the people who will you know, sort of chart their own path. And those women are the subject, are the ones who receive the worst vitriol. And this is where Wangara Mathai falls in. You know, after she won the Nobel Prize, Wangara Mathai came home to Kenya and tried to run for office. And she got like 700 votes in her own constituency because she refused to play along, because she went on the merit of her own academic qualifications. And in fact, you know, Wangari Mathai was the first woman in Kenyan history to earn a PhD. And, but most people didn't in this country, at least certainly of my generation, would not have recalled her as such if she had not won the Nobel Prize. Instead, her reputation was for having divorced her husband and therefore being, you know, done this huge, shameful, taboo thing of upending, you know, the traditional family, which in the 80s and 90s, in the 80s when it was happening, an enormous taboo. And so women like Wangari Mathai then become focused for these um, vitriolic attacks, and especially by women who necessarily, who might fall into the other categories, who are trying to protect their position in the party, will say, well, you know, support me, because I'm not like that woman. I'm a good woman. I have a husband. I have kids. I'm not divorced. I'm different. And what that does, essentially, is it divides the women's rights movement. And this is really where patriarchy has capitalized, that this division between this hyper-loyal women who get the numerical representation in parliament and the women who try and build their own path towards power, that division is really where all the losses have been. Because there is enough access to one type of woman that by definition, or one approach rather to women in, in public life, that by definition excludes the other. How many women have actually been elected to parliament in Kenya? How is the quota system supposed to raise that number? And how has implementation uh, of that system been handicapped uh, by male politicians? So in the current parliament, we remember Kenya had a constitutional change in 2010. So the current parliament has 290 um, uh, members of parliament. This is the National Assembly. Of the 290 members of the National Assembly, only 86 are women. The Constitution says that no more than two-thirds, so it means a minimum of 33% of legislators at all levels, so at county level and at national level, should be of one gender. So we're way, way below the two-thirds uh, quota. But the other thing to note is that of those 86, 47 are what we call women, so more than half are what we call women's representatives. Women's representatives are the quota seats, or the seats that were created um, specifically to allow women, more women to go into office. But the, and the reason why this, you know, if you take the women's rep seats out of it, then we have the lowest number of elected women since 1976, I believe. So the numbers in Kenya were going up, 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 up. And then we had the constitutional change. And instead of taking the numbers even higher, what it did is it brought the numbers lower. Why is that? 
because a lot of women opted out of contesting against male uh, representatives and instead ended up contesting the women's representative seats and therefore opting out from the violence and the po- politics and all of that. And then what happened after that is <laughs> because of the, the way in which the implementation happened, because there was no real mechanism to say this 47 seats cannot cancel out the gains that need to be made in the other seats, is that there's been this growing misunderstanding that the women's representative seats are not special parliamentary seats. They are seats for women to talk about women's things. And so the public understanding right now in Kenya is that the women's representatives are not full MPs. They are, in fact, the most, denigra- the, the most uh, denigrating term is they call them flower girls. And if you read the local papers, you'll see this all the time, the flower girls in parliament. And their job is to talk about m- m- divorce and matrimonial property and, and gender issues and not to talk about, you know, general po- political issues. If you look at it on a national scale, like in terms of county assemblies and everything, it's even more dire because we have over a thousand um, members of the county assembly of whom less than a hundred are actually women. And again, what happened was that there was the reserved seats and they couldn't even get, in a lot of counties, they couldn't even get enough women to stand for the reserved seats. And so what a lot of county assemblies have been doing is that they've been trying to change the local law to abolish the two-thirds requirement, which is clearly unconstitutional because the 2010 constitution says, you know, you have to have this one-third of women in this case because we're trying to create affirmative action for women. So it's been a very mixed bag in terms of um, overall, it seems to the lack of having this, this mechanism to say, well, we have the law, how do we make the law work, um, has actually really hit women hard and has created through this, uh, this perspective, this flower girl perspective, it's almost created a ghetto um, whereby women parliamentarians are rarely seen to be commenting on, quote unquote, mainstream political issues, the, the election laws, the, the uh, environmental protection laws. Very rarely, but whenever they need someone to come out and say something about, on either side, when they need someone to come and say something about, you know, very general gender position, then they bring the women out. And that only entrenches this idea that um, women are not full legislators further. Let's look across the border. Uh, All male councils of elders and violence, uh, especially Islamic uh, violence, uh, also figure in Somalia along with a a kind of ultra-conservative culture when it comes to women's roles and rights. Uh, Now even rolling back past progress. Talk about that. So Somalia is an interesting case, um, partly because full statistics are hard to come by. Somalia is, you know, it's been at war since 1992, and the war has been, has, has created some interesting changes. The country is theoretically divided into three zones. You have Somaliland in the north, you have Puntland in the middle, and you have uh, what we normally would call Somalia, Mogadishu, uh, which is a federation of about four states in the south. And what has happened is the presence of al-Shabaab, especially in the south and in Puntland, has pushed women almost completely out of public life. Al-Shabaab is very much uh, committed to a very strict understanding of Islamic law, but many people in Somalia say, well, not only is this, does this resonate with our experience as Somali people, but it also isn't 
really Islam. You know, in, in, in the, uh, when I spoke to uh, Minister for Gender in, in uh, Puntland, she said to me, you know, there's nothing un-Somali or un-Islamic about women in public life. There's nothing un-Somali or un-Islamic about us wanting to be represented in parliament. One of the things that's come out of the war is that there's been a transition council. Um, there's been a coalition, basically, of international actors partnering with the local government to help develop the systems that should ideally help Somalia transcend out of this war. And what the council said is that they wanted this two-thirds principle to also be entrenched in Somali law, that no more than one-third of, no more than two-thirds of the Somali uh, legislature should be made up of either gender. This actually turned out to be a little bit more controversial than they expected. As you mentioned, um, uh, and as I talk about in the piece, Somalia is also characterized by council of elders. They don't have universal direct suffrage. What happens is that the each ethnic group has a, a chooses a group of selectors, and it's those selectors that then get to vote for the president, for the deputy, for the speaker, for the vice president, etc., etc. All of those selectors in every single community in Somalia are men. And they have never, you know, they have never really supported any female candidate for anything. So what has happened is that women are having to sort of negotiate the spaces. And you end up with women being appointed in the ministries of gender and ministries of women's uh, um, development, et cetera, et cetera, special interest ministries. But some women really capitalize this. Women like Anissa Hajimamun, you know, she is there as the minister for gender and women uh, development, but she's saying, you know, I'm, that doesn't restrict me to only commenting on things that affect women, especially because things that affect women affect the society as a whole. Women have borne the brunt of the conflict in Somalia, um, losing family members, losing, you know, not being able to have any economic activity in the war context. The economic activities of women are usually more affected than the economic activities of men, men who are able to join fighting ranks, uh, whereas women, you know, you're not able to go to the market anymore, you're not able to trade anymore. And so, you know, it's they're basically being creative about using the space that's been given to them to try and get a bigger platform. But there has been resistance. You know, I mentioned in the article there was one sheikh who said um, that it was completely un-Islamic that to have this quota for women. In part, and and there, some analysts argued at the time that what he was saying was basically, if we give the seats to women, then a lot of men will lose out on having a seat in parliament, which is. You know, <laughs> kind of a strange argument. Um, but what he's what uh, he is uh, almost a week later retracted that statement for the same reasons that um, you know a lot of women came out very strongly and said there's nothing un-Somali, there's nothing un-Islamic about having women feature in public life. Talk about the case in 2014 of a woman who first, uh, for the first time ever, actually declared her own candidacy for the presidency. So Fadumo Daib, um, is, uh, she declared her candidacy in 2014. She, she was uh, born, in, born in Somalia, fled the country at, the, I think, the age of 11, um, and went to uh, Sweden as a refugee. Um, and 
um, you know, grew up in Sweden, went to nursing school, ended up, uh, after many, many years, ended up at Harvard School of Public Policy, the Kennedy School. And while she was at the Kennedy School, just before her graduation, she announced that she was going to run for a presidency in Somalia, but she was going to do it in an interesting and a different way. She wasn't going to appeal to the Council of Elders. She wasn't going to appeal to this patriarchal structure. She was going to try and do this in a more, um, you know, in a more, I guess the best word is, is, is is a more Western way, although that's kind of a normative statement, but she wanted to do it the, 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 a different way. She wanted to campaign and to organize and to mobilize the grassroots support, especially in social media, especially with the diaspora. Because recall, any much like I think Israel does this as well, anybody who is ethnically Somali is eligible for a Somali passport. So the diaspora then becomes this huge voting block that she courted very, very, very um, um, she very vigorously. And Fadumo, um, you know, because of the security situation, by because of being a woman, was not able to campaign in Somalia the way she would have liked to. In the year, in 2015, when, she, when the election was starting to get, you know, heated up, there were numerous terrorist attacks, many high-profile terrorist attacks against hotels in Mogadishu, in the capital city, against the airport. Um, you know, people tried to break into the airport in Mogadishu. And so she wasn't able to go onto the ground. But she did mount a very serious campaign uh, online and in the, uh, in the diaspora. Um, unfortunately, what happened was that they locked her out of the ballot. Faduma had always said that she wouldn't contest an election where, but that did not have universal suffrage that was run by this clan system, and the clan and the people who run the election said, "Well, we're not going to change it now because this is how we've always done this, and and so you're either going to play along or you're not going to play at all." And uh, she opted not to play at all, so she uh, was uh, procedurally locked from the election and has since then uh, dedicated her life to um, an anti-corruption struggle because the big problem, a major problem in Somali public life has been corruption. Um, but you have, her, her candidacy was really fascinating because, again, you know, women in public life in Somalia haven't always had this position, this, this sort of um, um, almost uh, marginal, extremely marginalized position. In the era of the pre-war era, in the Said Bari era, and Said Bari was a very was a very problematic uh, guy. But one of his things was that he um, wanted he really pushed hard to have more women. He's a secularist in the vein of um, you know the Turkish secularism, in that he wanted to have more women in public life. He wanted to have more of this, and there were laws that were passed that were very progressive laws of matrimonial property, which uh, parentheses is not anti-Islam either but you know he 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 was very much on this particular on this one issue very seriously courting women as a block and so you did have a lot of high profile women in somali public life the shift that's happened in the last 20 odd years has been can be attributed to a great part to the outbreak of war and to the outbreak of terrorist sort of related war whereby al-shabaab is is very much uh, about islamic militants and and very very strict interpretations of islamic law that um leave very little room not no room there's definitely some room but there's they do leave very little room for women in public life Highlighting the challenges facing women in Somalia and Kenya, you write, is not to ignore the sexism and violence uh, that also confront women in other East African nations. Uh, give us some notable examples there. 
I think the one that comes to mind first is South Sudan. South Sudan shares a border with Kenya. Um, and South Sudan, you know, has been at war since... I mean, the country of Sudan has been at war for, was at war for 40 years, and then there was independence, and then the war started again in 2011. And the, United, the UN released a report about war, uh, use of rape as a weapon of war in South Sudan that would really, it was, it was this is the um, last year, it is a toe-culling report about the use of, systematic use of rape by both factions of this war, um, against, especially against young women, but against women in general. And this has become complex comparable, if not surpassed, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is where a lot of people, is a lot of people's reference point for the use, systematic use of rape as a weapon of war. Um, you think about domestic violence is not a uniquely Kenyan problem. You have equally dire statistics in Tanzania and Uganda. In Burundi, you have the same problem. You have women in conflict being exposed to sexual violence, being exposed to um, Kidnapping, you know, in Uganda, the Lord, the Lord's Resistance Army, the kidnapping of young girls for use as sexual slaves was a pattern and has been a pattern of the Lord's Resistance Army, and that conflict has been going on for almost 30 years. So it's not that Kenya and Somalia are, you know, standout countries in the sense that they go further out of their way to marginalize women in private life. Rather, what it is is that other countries are able to implement these laws despite these private these challenges in private life, despite ongoing conflict in South Sudan, in it's in Uganda, in Burundi, you still have been able, you know, the genocide in Rwanda, you still have been able to get the numbers of women in politics, in electoral politics, up. Why not Kenya, which has you know, this reputation for being this beacon of peace in the region. Kenya is the only country in the region that has not had a massive breakout of sustained conflict since 1963. You know, we've never had a coup. We had an attempted coup in 82, but there's never been a political coup. How is it that despite this, you know, being spared the worst of conflict in the region, Kenya has been unable to get women into politics? And with Somalia, you know, it's the same question. You know, if Somalia has been at war for 12, since 1992, while South Sudan has been at war since 1960, uh, 40 years ago, you know, um, Uganda has been at war for a similar amount of time. How is it that these other countries, despite this broad-ranging conflict, have been able to get the numbers up and Somalia has not been able to? That's really the question I was trying to get at with this piece is there's something here that's more than just oh, well, you know, it's war or it's developing countries or women have it bad in Africa. There's something very unique that's happening in these two countries that I think merits further attention. Beyond more women in national, regional, and local government, what impact on the larger future of Africa do you expect or hope for from the fight for gender parity? I think it's about diversifying the subjects that are considered acceptable for political discourse. I think it's about bringing in voices that are normally left off of key conversations. Um, you know, the, in my piece on Ke Kenya, I've focused on the gender quota, but in fact, uh, the article, Article 42, 43, where um, the, the quota is contained, also contains information about the uh, 
uh, also contains requirements, sorry, about disabled groups and LGBTI groups. And, you know, in fact, what happened when we passed the, the 2010 Kenyan constitution was one of the most progressive constitutions, not just in Africa, but in the world. In the Bill of Rights, in this Article 43, it basically said this, we're going to create this haven for human rights um, and, and this aspirational you know, model uh, that we're going to be aspiring to, is gonna, the bar is going to be so high. The first thing that happened when this patriarchal parliament took over is they started to chip away at protections for everybody. And it's very much like that Frederick, uh, I think it's Frederick Niemöller point that says, you know, at first they came for this group and then I said nothing because I wasn't in that group. So the first they, they removed protections for LGBTI groups. And nobody said anything because, you know, we're still very much a country that's really struggling with homophobia. And then they came for, you know, the disabled and they took out those protections. And then we said nothing because, you know, we're not disabled and, and that's not really our fight. And now they're going after the protections that are the constitutional protections for women. And still there's this muted public outcry. And so what it, including women and including other voices is about saying, look, just because an issue affects one specific group more than it affects other groups doesn't mean that it's not an issue that affects everybody. Because if we cannot protect the interests of this subgroup, how can we guarantee that we'll protect the rights of everybody? I've always maintained that you, you don't measure the prosperity of a society by how it treats the very strong. You measure it by how it treats the very weak. So you could have the best universities in the world, and I'm not in any way subtweeting anyone, America, cough, cough. Um, but you could have the best public, you could have the best universities in the world, and you could have the best hospitals in the world. But if there's still people in your society that are going to bed hungry, even though there's a, a not because they, they, there's no food, but because there's no political will to get the food to them, then you have a problem. And it's the same with this, with this conversation of women in public life. You know, we can have the most progressive constitution in the world, and we can have the best intentions in the world, but if, there, if 51% of the country's population is unable to have their political uh, conversations on things that uniquely affect them in public life, then you're gonna, you still have a problem. You still have a fundamentally unequal society. Nanjala Nyabala, thank you. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Nanjala Nyabola is a political analyst based in Nairobi, Kenya, and a fellow at Foreign Policy Interrupted, focusing on conflict and crises in the region and refugee rights around the world. Her article in the new WPJ Winter issue is A Seat at the Table, the Fight for Gender Parity in Kenya and Somalia. Also featured in the new WPJ Winter issue, interrupted, written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the brinksmanship of Vladimir Putin, on the future of feminism in China, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>